Welcome to Diving Deep, part of the Fixing Healthcare podcast series. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Core, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was a CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, an author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can go to his website, robertperlmd.com. Robbie, in a recent Diving Deep episode, you talked about the acquisition of Geisinger Health by Kaiser. You mentioned the opportunities that come with increased size, but you also discussed the challenges this deal will have for both Kaiser and Geisinger. Numerous listeners were intrigued by the decision for both parties to go forward and do so in a way that doesn't align with the traditional Kaiser Permanente model. And they wanted to know the impact this would have on the entire arena of value-based care. Where would you like to begin? Jeremy, let's start with the data that show how problematic the current medical system is and how important healthcare transformation and value-based care will be for our nation going forward. For decades, research studies have concluded that the American healthcare system is ineffective, overly expensive, and falling further behind its international peers in important measures of performance, including life expectancy, chronic disease management, maternal mortality, and the incidence of medical error. And that's just to name a few. These failed outcomes are why policy experts have recommended value-based care. Can you explain to listeners what you mean by value-based care? Jeremy, happy to do so. Value-based care is the simultaneous provision of high-quality, convenient, and affordable medical care. It's not a new concept. It's long been the aim of leading health systems like Kaiser, Geisinger, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, and dozens more. And it's been a focus for Medicare for over a decade. And yet, results to date have almost always failed to match the vision. Is that why the acquisition of Geisinger by Kaiser has attracted so much attention? That's one of the reasons why when Kaiser Permanente acquired Geisinger Health under the banner of the newly formed Ryzen Health, that reporters, healthcare policy experts, and medical leaders wanted more information. With more than 185 years of combined healthcare delivery experience, Kaiser and Geisinger have long been held up as role models for the value-based care movement. Maybe people think this is the start of something of national importance. What's another reason? The second reason was that this acquisition was different from the traditional Kaiser Permanente model. As you know, Kaiser Permanente is a combination of two entities. There's the insurance half, Kaiser Foundation Health Plan and Hospitals, and the medical care provision half, the Permanente Medical Group. This time, rather than including the delivery half of Kaiser Permanente, the insurance half made the decision unilaterally to move forward and purchase Geisinger. For this reason, people were questioning whether this deal will work. On one hand, it's possible this acquisition and others that the insurance half of KP has decided to do might create a force that's capable of generating national healthcare transformation. On the other hand, this deal may be simply a desperate attempt at relevance for Kaiser Health Plan 
and for survival of Geisinger, spending over a billion dollars to acquire a hospital system that lost hundreds of millions of dollars this year without a specific plan to improve operational and clinical excellence, that feels to many like a political, not a shrewd business decision. What's your evaluation? Jeremy, since the details of the acquisition have yet to be announced, it's impossible for me to reach a final conclusion at this point. But I don't think that putting two names together generates change. The reality is that whether incumbents like Kaiser Permanente and Geisinger will add value by joining or completely fail will depend largely on whether the combined organizations can deliver significantly more efficient and effective value-based care compared to what's currently available inside Geisinger. And so far, there's no plan, at least that I've read, no plan that I think has been released that points to dramatically better clinical performance in the future. And that is what is missing, not just in the deal, but in American healthcare today. Why do you say that? Jeremy, the U.S. healthcare system is facing a crisis over the next eight years. Our nation's health and economic problems are expected to get worse, not better. According to federal government actuaries, healthcare expenditures will rise from $4.2 trillion today to $7.2 trillion by 2031. That's an extra $3 trillion of expense annually in the near future. Assuming these projections prove accurate, healthcare costs will consume an estimated 19.6% of the U.S. gross domestic product by 2031. Phrased differently, the U.S. will nearly double the cost of medical care without dramatically improving the health of the nation. And if that happens, the financial drain will have a negative impact on education, infrastructure, personal income, police and fire, to name but a few areas where budget cutbacks will result. The good news is that improvements are possible, and they're possible without compromising medical care. In fact, for decades, health policy experts have pointed out the inefficiencies in medical care delivery. Researchers estimated that inappropriate and redundant tests, along with ineffective and unnecessary procedures, account for more than 30% of all the money spent on American medical care. This combination of troubling economics and untapped opportunity in the current healthcare system, they explain why value-based care has become medicine's holy grail. Although health systems across the country are searching for a solution, what's uncertain is whether the needed transformation in medical care delivery and insurance financing will be led from inside the current healthcare world or from outside the current medical establishment. How well do you believe Kaiser and Geisinger will fit into that value-based care framework? On the positive side, for years, Kaiser Permanente has led the nation in clinical quality and patient outcome based on independent third-party research via the National Committee for Quality Assurance, which is the NCQA, and Medicare STAR ratings. Similarly, over a decade ago, Geisinger was praised by President Obama for delivering high-quality care at a cost well below the national average. As such, both organizations have a good foundation to move forward. But on the negative side, these organizations and many other highly regarded national and regional health systems, they've been vulnerable to disruption, especially when their strategy and operational decisions have failed to align. 
As an example, when Kaiser tried to deliver value-based care, but they used fee-for-service model in new geographies like New York, North Carolina, Kansas, and Texas, it failed. And they were forced to exit the states completely. More recently, in several of the existing regions, Kaiser Permanente has failed to grow market share and suffered financial difficulties as a result. Meanwhile, Geisinger has failed uh, recently after decades of market dominance. As Bob Herman reported in the Stat News, he said, quote, failed acquisitions, antitrust scrutiny, leadership changes, growing competition from local players, and a pandemic that temporarily upended how patients got care have forced Geisinger to abandon its independence. The system is coming off a year in which it lost $240 million from its patient care and insurance operations. How would you put all these pieces together? Jeremy, if I had to put all the pieces together, I'd say that the Kaiser Geisinger deal represents an industry undergoing massive change and that disruption is on the horizon. I'd add that as health systems face intensifying pressures from insurers and a growing threat from retailers like Amazon, CVS, and Walmart, that the difficulties will grow. This upcoming battle over the future of value-based care, it will be a classic conflict between incumbents and new entrants. Can you expand on these new entrants? Sure, Jeremy. The biggest threat to the incumbents will be the retail giants, companies like Amazon, Walmart, and CVS. All these companies are among the nation's 10 largest businesses based on annual revenue, as reported in the most recent Fortune survey. From the positive side, they all have a broad geographic presence and strong relationships with the CEOs of almost all self-funded businesses. Nearly all of these retail giants have acquired or are in the process of acquiring the necessary healthcare pieces, including clinicians, home health services, pharmacies, insurance arms, and electronic medical record systems. And their expectation, I believe, is to replace, not just augment, the current medical system. But from the negative side, while these companies expand into medical care and financing, several find that their core businesses are struggling, resulting in announced store closures and layoffs. Moreover, as newcomers to the healthcare market, they've been forced to pay premium dollar over the past few years to acquire all the parts of the delivery system. And despite the advances they've made so far, each of them has a steep learning curve ahead of them. What makes transformation so difficult in healthcare? Jeremy, as we've talked about on the show before, American medicine is a conglomerate of monopolies. By that, I mean insurers, hospitals, drug companies, and private equity-owned medical practices. Each works to maximize its own revenue and profit. All are unwilling to innovate in ways that benefit patients when doing so comes at the sacrifice of financial performance. Across the country, one problem stands at the center of America's soaring healthcare costs, the way doctors, hospitals, and drug companies are paid. The dominant payment methodology in the United States, fee-for-service, rewards healthcare providers for charging higher prices and increasing the number and complexity of services offered, even when doing so provides no added value. The message to doctors and hospitals is clear. The more you do, and the greater market control you have, the higher your income and profit. This approach, this approach to medical practice, 
It's the antithesis of value-based care. How does this play out in healthcare today? Jeremy, it's always easier and less risky to do more than to do better. As an example, let's assume that there was a way to reduce the number of patients needing inpatient hospital care. Logically, facilities could make up the lost revenue by attracting patients from surrounding hospitals with the promise to insurers of better clinical outcomes at much lower costs. This would be a win-win-win for the payers, the providers, and the patients. But over the three to five years that it would take to negotiate the new contracts and refill the beds that were now empty, the inpatient facilities would likely go bankrupt. So rather than trying to take out the inefficiencies and reduce the need and length for hospital stays, administrators focus on ways to fill the beds and maximize the cost per day. What's the alternative? Jeremy, the alternative to fee-for-service payments is capitation. Capitation involves paying a single upfront sum to the providers of care, and by that I mean the doctors and the hospitals, to cover the total annual cost for a population of patients. This model, unlike fee-for-service, rewards effectiveness and efficiency. Capitation creates incentives to prevent disease, reduce complications from chronic illness, and diminish the inefficiencies and redundancies that are present in the current healthcare system. Capitated health systems that can do more effectively, they prevent heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. And they do so not only with better clinical outcomes, but better financial performance. What's the problem moving from fee-for-service to capitation for doctors? Jeremy, it's hard to create the medical group structure needed to make capitation work. First, you need a large number of clinicians from a broad range of specialties to be able to provide the medical care effectively and efficiently. Second, you need a leadership structure with the ability and power to implement change. And finally, you need a culture that values group excellence and promotes collaboration and cooperation rather than individual doctor autonomy and competition across specialties. And none of that comes naturally inside the culture of medicine. Thinking about what needs to happen is analogous to looking at a tall mountain with a vertical ascent. You know the view from the top will be amazing, but when you think of the effort required, you decide that staying with what you have, that's probably better than taking the risk. Given this reality, what are the biggest difficulties Kaiser and Geisinger will need to overcome for this deal to work? I see three big challenges which stand in the way. First, as we said, the permanent medical groups aren't involved. As such, it's unclear who will help Geisinger improve its current performance. Geisinger must navigate a complex turnaround and implement innovative care delivery approaches, ones that exist in Kaiser Permanente that don't currently exist in Geisinger. That's the only way Geisinger will be able to provide superior quality at lower cost than its current competitors and be able, therefore, to grow its market share. And Kaiser Insurance doesn't have that knowledge, expertise, or experience. Second, Geisinger today is heavily reliant on community doctors who are paid through a fee-for-service methodology. And when physicians are paid on this basis, they have little ability to, or even little motivation, to make the changes necessary because the only way they can maintain their income is through greater volume and higher unit prices. And this isn't the way to value-based medical care. 
and rarely does it lead to improved clinical outcomes and operational excellence. Finally, major improvements in care delivery require skilled leadership with the authority to drive clinical change. In Kaiser Permanente, that comes through the medical groups and its physician CEOs. In Geisinger's hybrid model, independent doctors have no direct oversight or central accountability structure. Although Ryzen Health could be an engine for value-based medical care, it's more likely to serve the role of a holding company capable of recommending operational improvements, but incapable of driving meaningful change. And that means that significant improvements in care delivery will be hard to achieve. As we noted earlier, the fundamental question about this acquisition is what's going to be different about Geisinger once the deal is in place compared to today? And the reality is that if little changes, we can expect that once the one to $2 billion acquisition price is spent by Geisinger, that the problems and financial losses will once again return. It's clear what the problems will be for nearly all the incumbents, including Kaiser Permanente and Geisinger. What are the hurdles that retail giants will need to overcome? As you imply, Jeremy, the challenges for the new entrants will be as great as for the current players. Here are three of them. First, they'll need to expand their current medical offerings. Amazon, Walmart, and CVS are successfully acquiring primary care and associated telehealth services. But competing with leading health systems will require a more holistic, system-based approach to keep medical care affordable. And this won't be easy. To avoid ineffective, expensive specialty and hospital services, they'll need to hire their own specialists to consult with their primary care doctors. And they'll have to establish centers of excellence, ones where they can provide heart surgery, cancer treatment, orthopedic care, and more with industry-leading outcomes and far lower prices and costs than today. But to meet the day-to-day -day and emergent needs of patients, they'll also have to establish contracts with specialists and hospitals in every community they serve. And these specialists and hospitals, they're likely to be miffed that the best cases are going to the doctors who work for the retail giants, and they therefore could resist signing these contracts, or at least agreeing to rates that will be financially successful. Second, the retail giants will need to become experts in capitation. Already, the retail giants have acquired organizations well-versed in delivering patient care through Medicare Advantage, which is the capitated alternative to traditional fee-for-service Medicare plans. That's a good start, but the retailers must do more than dip a toe in value-based care models. They must find ways to gain sufficient experience with capitation and translate that success into value-based contracts with self-funded businesses, which today currently insure tens of millions of their employees. And third, they'll need to identify, hire, and trust skilled healthcare leaders. Although the Amazon, CVS, and Walmart have tremendous expertise in retail, healthcare delivery, it's different in many ways. And similar to the incumbents, without an effective and proven clinical leadership structure, the retail giants will be no more effective than their mainstream comp competitors will be when it comes to implementing improvements and shifting the culture of medicine to one that is customer and service focused. Ultimately, once these retail giants have contracts with payers, they'll need to rely on doctors and other clinicians to provide the medical care for which they are accountable. And physicians, 
they don't listen or even follow leaders that they don't respect for their medical expertise. And that means the retail giants will acquire physician leaders, ones capable of understanding the strategy of the retail giants, but also ones with the confidence and ability to challenge the plan when it doesn't align with what's best for patient care. How does systemness fit into the equation? Jeremy, be they incumbents and new entrants, every contender will hit a wall if they cling to today's fragmented and failing care delivery model. It's just not possible to coordinate care and implement the innovative operational improvements needed for value-based care when every part of the delivery system is focused on maximizing its own piece of the pie. And in the end, the secret ingredient, which most lack and all will need, is systemness. The reality is that for all the hype surrounding value-based care, fragmentation and fee-for-service are far more common in American healthcare today than integration and capitation. Value-based healthcare is the holy grail American medicine is searching to achieve. But as we noted at the start of the program, no one has fully discovered it. Implementing each of the three parts, excellent clinical quality, convenient access, and affordability for all, they remain elusive, although some healthcare systems are much closer than others are getting there. No one has yet reached the goal line. Why do you say value-based care is medicine's holy grail? Jeremy, in the 20th century, U.S. medical groups and hospital systems could, at best, achieve two elements of the value-based triangle, but always the sacrifice of the third. Until recently, American medicine lacked the clinical know-how, the technology, the operational excellence to accomplish all three quality access costs simultaneously. We now have the necessary technology tools, but they don't deliver what patients want and need without the glue, and that glue is systemness. Can you expand on what you mean by systemness? Systemness is the effective and efficient coordination of healthcare's many parts, outpatient and inpatient, primary and specialty care, financing and care delivery, prevention and treatment. By bringing these disparate pieces together within a single high-functioning organization, healthcare providers have the opportunity to apply technology and use operational excellence to maximize clinical outcomes, eliminate waste, lower overall costs, and provide greater levels of convenience and access. It sounds like a massive hill to climb. It is, Jeremy, but the rewards are tremendous for whoever succeeds. Although both the incumbents and new entrants will struggle to implement value-based care on a national scale, the victor will earn hundreds of billions of dollars in added revenue and tens of billions in profits. Think about it this way. Healthcare is a $4 trillion industry. So let's just say that a single organization can take over 10% of the total. That's $400 billion. And if that healthcare system can cut 20% of the waste in the care they provide, that would generate $80 billion in profit. Now, let's put this in context. This level of success alone would make that organization, the one that accomplishes it, to be the sixth largest company in the world based on revenue, and the second most profitable company in the world, right after Apple, based upon the bottom line. Robbie, let's dive down a level. Can you give an example from your time as CEO in Kaiser Permanente of how systemness proves to be a competitive advantage? Jeremy, a great place to start in understanding the importance of systemness 
is in the area of preventing chronic diseases and avoiding their complications. Research demonstrates that accomplishing this through preventive medicine and early intervention reduces heart attacks, strokes, and cancer significantly. And if the U.S. wants to improve quality and lower costs, what better way to start than avoiding these life-threatening medical problems? And yet, our nation falls far short in these areas when compared to global peers. One example is hypertension. This is the leading cause of strokes and a major contributor to heart attacks. With help from doctors, nearly all patients can keep high blood pressure under control. And yet, hypertension is controlled only 60% of the time across the United States today. We see similarly poor rates of performance when it comes to prevention and screening for cancers of the colon, breast, and lung. Reverse these failures requires systemness. The reason is that no single doctor can accomplish it by themselves. But in Kaiser Permanente, through systemness, 90% of patients had their blood pressure controlled and they were screened for cancer. Getting there required a comprehensive electronic health record, a willingness for every doctor, regardless of specialty, to focus on prevention and leadership that could effectively communicate the value of prevention and a salary structure that rewarded group excellence. How about a second example? A second example, most doctor's offices, they're open Monday to Friday during normal business hours. And that's only one fourth of the time when a medical problem might occur. At night and on weekends, patients have no choice but to go to an ER for medical care. And there they see a doctor who's never seen them before and won't ever see them in follow-up. Often they wait hours for care. They're surrounded by people with communicable diseases. Their non-emergent problem will generate a bill 12 times higher than if they had been seen in a doctor's office. And yet that is the standard in the United States today. System this provides a better way. In large enough medical groups, hundreds of clinicians can provide round-the-clock care on a rotating virtual basis using video to assess patients and make evidence-based recommendations. This approach that was pioneered by physicians in the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group solved the patient's problem immediately 70% of the time. And that's without a trip to the ER. And for the other 30% of patients, it enabled coordination of emergent care with the ER staff. Robbie, do you have a third one? Sure, Jeremy. Um, despite our nation having an abundance of specialists, accessing one can be difficult and delayed for many patients. When a primary care physician needs added expertise, let's say from a dermatologist, a urologist, an orthopedist, it's usually the responsibility of the patient to make their own medical appointment, check with insurance for coverage, and provide their medical records. This takes hours or days of the patient's time to coordinate their own treatment. And this hurdle can delay care by weeks, resulting in avoidable complications. But in a well-structured system, there's no need to wait. Using telehealth tools at Kaiser Permanente, primary care doctors can connect instantly with dozens of different specialists, often while the patient is still in the exam room. And once connected, the specialist can evaluate the patient and provide immediate expertise. This way, care is not only faster and less expensive, but it's also better coordinated. Data from within inside Kaiser Permanente show that these virtual consultations resolve the patient's problem 40% of the time, 
without having to schedule another appointment. And for the other 60% of patients, the diagnostic process can begin immediately. And by resolving 40% of the problems that otherwise would have required an office visit, this approach frees up time for the 60% of patients who need to have the in-person visit before treatment can begin. And as a result, nearly all consultations can be scheduled in one to two days. What does it take to implement these types of high-quality, convenient, and more affordable approaches? Three things are needed to implement value-based care. First, reimbursement needs to be through capitation at the delivery system level. But it isn't possible to accept a capitated payment as a single doctor. As such, a moderate-sized medical group is required as the number two necessity to move in this direction. And even that isn't enough without skilled physician leadership that can actually change care delivery. And rarely are all three present. In fact, most organizations across the U.S. that claim to operate so-called value-based systems, they actually rely on doctors who are scattered across the community, disconnected from each other, and paid on the basis of volume fee-for-service rather than on the basis of value or capitation. As a result, patient care ends up being fragmented and uncoordinated. It leads to repeated tests and ineffective treatments, higher medical expenses, and compromised medical outcomes. In the end, value-based care, as you noted, superior quality, access, and affordability, requires teams of clinicians working together as one, all paid on a capitated basis. Why is capitation so important? The writer Upton Sinclair once pointed out that it's, quote, difficult to get a person to understand something when their salary depends upon not understanding it. And that's medicine's challenge when it comes to implementing value-based care today. Without capitation, dermatologists will insist on seeing every patient in their office where they can bill insurance five times more than with a telemedicine visit. Gastroenterology specialists will insist that every patient has a colonoscopy rather than recommending to low-risk patients that they can do a safe, convenient at-home colon cancer screening called the fecal immunochemical test or FIT at a fraction of the cost. In these circumstances, individual doctors, they don't consciously make care inconvenient for patients. No, rather it's the only choice they think they have when working in a fee-for-service payment methodology and model. They have to pay their rent and the salaries of their office staff, and they can't do so when their reimbursement through more effective, convenient, and efficient approaches is significantly lower. But as soon as clinicians are capitated, the calculus changes. And of course, the patient whose problem is immediately resolved. That's the individual who benefits the most. Ultimately, value-based care and systemness, they're best achieved when healthcare systems are integrated, prepaid, technologically enabled, and physician-led. Do you think the need to achieve systemness will prove difficult for the retail giants to accomplish? That's a tough question, Jeremy, and I would say yes and no. On one hand, these companies are already global leaders in systemness, at least in retail. Combined, they have a market cap of $1.88 trillion. They employ 3 to 4 million Americans. They rely on comprehensive, highly effective information technology systems. Already, they manage complex order entry and fulfillment methodologies and systems and approaches. They use technology to streamline everything from customer service to the supply chain management. 
and they're led through a clear and effective reporting structure. Just think how complex it must be to deliver packages to our homes from thousands of different manufacturers the next day. Or imagine what it must be like to ensure the shelves are fully stocked when you have thousands of stores, many in very rural and minimally populated towns across the nation. Then compare that performance against today's uncoordinated, individualized, leaderless healthcare industry. They have a tremendous head start in that arena. On the other hand, as new entrants to healthcare, they're starting way behind the incumbents when it comes to providing medical treatment. How much progress have they made so far? As retailers vie to bring their system know-how to American medicine, they are acquiring the pieces needed to compete with the current healthcare incumbents. They've spent tens of billions of dollars to acquire medical groups that are committed to value-based care, ones like One Medical and Oak Street. They've also spent massive sums on home health companies like Signify and on pharmacies like PillPack, along with expanding their in-store, at-home, and online care options. Many of these medical groups and businesses already are focused on Medicare Advantage, the capitated half of Medicare that we discussed last time, where financial success is dependent on high-quality medical care provided at lower costs. What's more, all these retailers have a national presence with brick-and-mortar facilities in nearly every community in the country, a leg up on nearly every existing health system. Whether the retail giants can put all these pieces together and earn the trust of doctors and patients, that's yet to be seen. But anyone who's assuming that these retail giants can't possibly succeed, they're deluding themselves. Who do you believe will come out victorious in this battle? Jeremy, trying to pick the victor in the battle to transform American medicine at this point, it's like selecting the winner of a heavyweight championship boxing match after three evenly matched rounds. Intangibles like stamina, courage, and willingness to absorb pain, these have yet to be tested. In The Innovator's Dilemma, the late Clay, Clay Christensen examined historical battles between incumbent organizations and new entrants. After analyzing dozens of industries, he concluded that new entrants routinely become the victors because the incumbents move too slowly. They hold on to what made them successful in the past, and they fail to embrace the need for major change. And from that perspective, if I had to wager, I put my money on the retail giants. As you think about this transformation, what worries you the most? Jeremy, my greatest fear is that neither those inside nor those outside of healthcare will make the necessary investments or accept the risk of leading systemic change. And as a result, the movement toward value-based healthcare will stall and die. In that context, purchases of healthcare, the businesses, the government, and patients will encounter a difficult reality. Over the next eight years, as medical costs nearly double, they'll face an even more unaffordable and unsustainable scenario. As a result, their only choice will be to cut back on coverage. And when that happens, our nation will experience a growing number of individuals and families who are uninsured. We'll see a progressive reliance on rationing, not just for the poor, but also the middle class. And we'll see and experience 
problematic, ever longer delays for care, and there'll be an increase in health disparities. And Jeremy, should that day arrive, our country will regret its inaction. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.